before we start, uh, we'd like to have a time of prayer and, uh, be, you know, praying for Annette's family with the, the loss of her father. Um, I didn't realize Douglas MacArthur, I knew he was Douglas, but I didn't realize it was Douglas MacArthur. He was born on, uh, I think, December 30th of 1941, so uh, Pearl Harbor right before that. And uh, yeah, the funeral tomorrow is at uh, 10 o'clock at Glen Funeral Home. Be thinking about whether you could get over to that to encourage the family and praying for Pastor Mark as he'll be preaching the message there that the gospel would go forth and that God would see fit to save people even through this. And then uh, also, and he probably doesn't know I'm going to share, but Andrew Fendrick, has, just as a prayer request for the family, his uncle and aunt in Mount Vernon, and they both profess faith, um, they were murdered, I guess, on Friday night. Um, you know, Mount Vernon's a pretty small town and a pretty safe town. Um, they were in their 70s. Um, but the, the family's doing well, and there's an investigation going on even right now for that. And then uh, Pastor Mark is in Seattle and heading back today for some, some, some rest and relaxation, although you know we're on so many group texts together that I don't think he's gotten much rest and relaxation because he's been working from there a lot, and there's been lots of uh, church work and shepherding going on there, but we can be praying for his travels back today. And then um, our church budgets, we have our church business meeting um, voting on the budget, um, new members, some members coming off will be two weeks from today. And our church budgets will be for members be in the foyer on your way out. You can please grab one of those and look that over and pray over that. And we'll see God guide us even in this. So let me, let me pray and then we'll jump into Nehemiah 11 and 12. Heavenly Father, your, your goodness is great uh, this world is hard often times. Uh, we pray and ask at different times to let our hearts not become enamored this, with this world because that is so easy to do. Uh, frankly, Lord, with, with really challenging times, your children are often looking more intensely on your return. And so may even these hard things of losing a father, of losing an uncle and aunt, um, just life challenges, push us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look to him, to look to his return, to see our days here as opportunities to, to live for him, to honor him, to glorify him. But ultimately, may our eyes be on you and looking for your return. Will you Comfort Annette and her sisters and the family. Um, will you comfort, I don't know the maiden name, but, but Andrew's uh, uncle and aunt's families, extended families. And uh, Lord, we ask for justice and ask that you work in your perfect way. And Lord, we are very thankful for Pastor Mark for his shepherding and teaching and guiding ministry here of our church. And... Uh, Bring him back to us safely, and may he have at least some rest and relaxation in this little little trip that he took. We're a blessed church. Uh, may you guide our thinking in this text today. In Jesus' name, amen. You're going to have on the screen behind me a, uh, a timeline. I thought that might be helpful to us a little bit. Um, if we look in the life of Nehemiah, he's kind of getting to be the end of the story of these returns. We could go earlier, we could go um, 
First and Second Kings, certainly First and Second Chronicles, we could see some of the sin um, of Israel, of Judah, and God's judgment. Um, we know that Babylon came in in 605, 606 BC and smacked, smacked uh, the southern tribe of Judah pretty hard, deported a bunch of people. A few years passed, did it again in 597. In 586, pretty much annihilated the country of Judah and um, deported virtually everybody else. They left um, some people to be kind of laborers in the country there. And um, then they were in Babylon. Babylon gets taken over by Persia. So they are subjects of Persia, those that were deported. Um, but God graciously gives the, the 70 years, 66 to 70 years, but he gives um, the 70 years, he allows a return. We have in 538 or so around that area, we've got um, the return under Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Yeshua as the high priest. Um, they come back, things are a wreck. Ezra talks about that in the early part of his book. And then um, uh, Ezra makes a return. And um, just a little bit of, of some details on Ezra's return. Again, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah today, but I think it gives us kind of some insight and just a little bit of Ezra's life. You know, he set his heart to know God, to know God's word and to teach it, to make it understandable. And, and he did that. So he was sent back under the second return. Um, it's a really difficult journey. We've got a, a 900 mile trip. You've got Persia at that time is thriving um, for many Jews. Their lives were financially and generally in the culture much better than they had been in Judah when things had gotten really, really bad under these evil kings in the, in the decades and centuries prior. Um, Ezra 7, 7 kind of shares this, you know, it's this 900-mile journey. It took five months. He led a bunch of people. On day three, you know, they've been calling, hey, hey, all you Jews in Persia, let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's make worship how it ought to be in Judah and uh, he, he gets people to go back on the third day. They stop at a river and they look around and they have, they have no Levites. They don't have anybody from the Levit Levitical priesthood. Stops, stops for a few days and he said, hey, go, we, we've got to have these. This is given, you know, God expects this. They run and grab some of them. They continue on their journey. Ezra gives this really honest admission. He says, um, we were embarrassed to ask for protection because, I mean, there's bandits on the way. We could be ambushed. We've, we've been given all this money to take back to Judah on this trip. But we were embarrassed because we had told, we had told all these Persians, hey, God's really good to us. God's behind us. So we, we were embarrassed to ask for any protection. So we went without horses, without soldiers. And then he says in chapter 8 of Ezra, and God was good and kept us out of like, being hurt by ambushes on the way. Whether there were ambushes they weren't injured in, whether there were no ambushes, we don't know. But Ezra makes this really grinding, ruling journey. Uh, and, and Nehemiah's would have been difficult too, but Nehemiah didn't take, and we've looked about at this in previous weeks with, with uh, Pastor Mark preaching and, and Pastor Keith and Pastor Keith preaching. But um, Nehemiah didn't take a huge amount of people in his, the third return. And his return would have been about 444, 445 BC. So you can see those years passing um, in that timeline. Um, Nehemiah got soldiers, he got horses. I'm sure it was a quicker trip. It doesn't say anything about the trip in Nehemiah. It just says, and then I got there. And they're there in Israel, and walls are broken down, and um, worship is in shambles. There's enemies all around. The temple is built, but when it was built, it was not as impressive as Solomon's temple. And the, the joy of the people looking at it, we're told in Ezra, 
and the crying of the old people that knew about the old temple made this loud, loud, loud noise. So things are really difficult. So we looked at Ezra a little bit. Things are really difficult when Nehemiah, when Ezra, when Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Joshua made their returns. And so the question we ask is, why do it, Ezra? The question from our text today, why, why do it, Nehemiah? Why serve and sacrifice and worship? And why do it, Hudson Taylor? And why do it, Helen Rosevear? And why do it, Harold Condor? And Paula Payne? And Wasson and Jennifer Carrick? And Patsy Lawless? Why do it, unknown and unnamed servants of God throughout history? Why follow when it's hard and sometimes lonely and it's not normal in our world? Well, it's because sacrificial living is worship. That God receives glory through sacrificial worshiping people. And that's really how chapters 11 and 12 separate out. It's a pretty simple outline. Chapter 11 is focusing on this sacrifice. Focusing on this sacrifice. People making decisions to live in a way that might, be the way, might not be the way that they would prefer. But they want to do what God wants. They say, hey, so this is what I'm going to do. And chapter 12 kind of gives us these pictures over and over and over of, of worship. And I, I hope as we, even as we read some of the text, as we think through this, that we're seeing that the sacrifice isn't a woe is me, and the, and the worship isn't a duty, it is a, a delight. And there's overlap in the two, that even in the sacrifice, there's worship. I hope we can see that as we look through the text. So let's, let's start in there right away in Nehemiah 11 and see that God receives glory through sacrificial people. And I think it's important for us to see, um, first of all, what sacrifice is not. Uh, sacrifice is not self-injury. We could back up some centuries and look at the flagellant uh, monks of the 13th and 14th century before they were forced to disband, and how they would see a verse like, mortify the flesh, as in, I'm going to beat myself and beat myself and beat myself so that God is more pleased with me. Or we can think Middle Ages and think people walking up their knees on steps or those kind of things. But even right now in a few different broadly Christian traditions, incorrectly, they would say, I'm going to walk up my knees on these steps and I'm going to get some grace from God in doing so. So in hurting myself, I'm a sacrifice. It's not what the Bible's talking about with sacrifice. Um, another one, it is not, is public show. Again, we could go to the Middle Ages or we could go to social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Uh, when we were at the, the Daniel Patino shelter, it was really hard to get people to realize you can do something good and you don't have to take a picture of it and post it all over everything. And, and I'm sure there's a place for getting other people involved and encouraging and stuff, but you, know, you really can do your devotions without telling everyone, hey, everyone, I'm doing my devotions. You know, we, we can do those things quietly and serve quietly. And so much of the time, that's what true sacrifice is. So it's not self-injury. It's not a public show. And it certainly is not, woe is me living. Hey, everyone, I'm poor for Jesus. Hey, everyone, I'm in the ministry. I hope you feel really bad for me. Hey, everyone. That, that, is, that is not what it ought to be. That is not what sacrifice is to be. So what is sacrificial living? Romans 12 reminds us in the familiar text, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So in my life right now, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And it's supposed to be holy. It's supposed to be set apart unto God, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if, if you could picture a lamb at the altar, because that's our, our picture of sacrifice, we look at a lamb and say, well, the lamb's right there, the lamb's on the altar. Clearly, it was not his choice to be there. But if you back it up a little bit more, that little lamb at one time was out in a pasture with probably a twin sibling, and they really liked hanging out with their mom and the other sheep. If you know anything about sheep, sheep will virtually die to stay together in their group. So someone grabbed a lamb out of the group, and it wasn't just like, oh, okay, let's go. Lambs are, are bleating and hollering and kicking and jumping around, and that they, I want to be over here. My, my place is over here. And someone brings that lamb and carries it either to town, tying its feet up, putting it on something, carrying it, however it is. It's taken in front of the altar, and it's laid on the altar, and eventually its throat is cut, and the blood bleeds out. The lamb isn't having his own agenda there. The lamb would be grazing out with his mom, or at least out with a flock if it's an older one. The lamb has no agenda in this. And, and I, we are at our best as followers of Christ when we're saying, I am, I am moldable in your hands, God. Work with me how you choose, even when that choosing often isn't easy. My life is his. I'm not going to drift with society because our society and even ourselves often have this temptation or this kind of thinking we like to have. I'll give time after I've taken care of myself. I'll be generous once I've paid for my good education, I've gotten a good job and had a good house and cars and, and 401ks and all those kind of things. We all fight that. I'll be generous once I'm there. You know, so-and-so in the church and so-and-so in the church, they're, they're probably there. I bet they can be really generous, but I'll be generous with I'm th- when I'm there. That is not the pattern of sacrifice. And it's not just talking finances. That's time, that's emotion, that's service. It's not a someday when I've arrived or things are easier, then I will sacrifice. It's not saying I'm going to follow God as long as it doesn't look weird to other people in my neighborhood or as long as my health is perfect or as long as I'm comfortable or as long as I get encouragement. So what does it look like in Nehemiah? What is sacrifice in Nehemiah? Well, these three main things. One, being willing to follow God's direction. So, Look there in uh, Nehemiah 11, those first two verses. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So again, this isn't a pretty, beautiful city. This is not hanging gardens of Solomon's time. This is a, a, a burned out city. We need to think of it that way. Yes, there's been one and two and now this third return, but it is not beautiful yet. Now, yes, the walls have been rebuilt earlier in Nehemiah. The temple has been rebuilt, rebuilt um, but it, it is not a beautiful city at this point. And it says, And the rest of the people cast lots, so the non-leaders, to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten, actually the, the Hebrew says nine hands out of ten, but nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. We've got this burned out town. There's some half torn down buildings. We've all gone to areas, whether it's the small town near where I live or other places in this world maybe that you visited, 
where at one time the population was much greater and there's empty buildings and yucky looking buildings and what's going on in that half, and, half broken down building and wow, at one time things were better, but this is not, not good now. That's Jerusalem at that time. And Jerusalem had walls, but it had gone 142 years without. They had had accurate worship before, but it had gone decades and decades without, almost to the effect of, if you look in our day, that would be say, say okay, yeah, um, right after the Civil War, that's when we were last a, a somewhat powerful nation. And, and really, Judah had been going downhill, but it, it had been like Civil War distance back since they had been at least somewhat comfortable. It's a long time. That's a lot of generational turnover. And there's still threats by Sanballat. What happens if we're attacked? Uh, Tobiah uh, and others. Um, Nehemiah 7.4 says, The city is big and the people are few. This is the circumstances that they are in. If you're out in the country, there's more food, opportunities to grow food, opportunities to shepherd your sheep or get livestock from others to eat. It's safer than a weak city. If an army comes through, the army might have a swath of destruction on their way to the city, but they're going to go to Jerusalem and attack them first. So if you're out in the country, it's probably safer, especially with fewer people there. And we also have the family blessing of land. They cast lots, normal at this time, of seeking and finding out God's will. And I think it's really a beautiful picture, this, this tithe of people. And it's not a kicking and screaming tithe of people. It's saying, I, I willingly want to follow you, God. I will go. A beautiful picture for us. Now, the, the focus in this is not um, urban versus suburban versus rural church planting. I've I, I read several different things. And, and, and one pastor, that I, he's with the Lord now, but um, that did some terrific inner city ministry in Philadelphia said, hey, this, is, this means we go to the cities, boys. And um, there is much emphasis in Scripture. You see Paul's journeys and, and, and uh, that the, they went to urban centers centrally. But that, that isn't really what the purpose of this is to push uh, inner city church planting kind of thing, although that is valuable and vital. Really, we need to think of Jerusalem as, as God's blessed and holy city. Uh, if you read Isaiah and the Psalms, you're going to see 80 times between those two books this Zion, Jerusalem blessing, Zion, Jerusalem blessing, uh, the need for blessing, that the goal that God has. This is the city of God. And you see that over and over and over. And that's really what the people are seeing here. They're seeking to see God's purposes accomplished. They're seeking to obey. We will follow even if it's not what we prefer. And probably where they were living out in the country is what they preferred, at least the group that was there at that time. So, so how does that push us today, this being willing to follow God's direction? Well, it, it could mean moving to North Africa or Serbia or elsewhere. Could, and that would be terrific. It, it may mean moving to the city or moving to the country to minister. It, it could, but it might not involve changing houses. It might mean reading the word and changing how you parent your children. It might be you teenagers reading the word and saying, I need some friends that help me to know Christ, not pull me away from knowing Christ. It surely means putting to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, but not in the flagellant monk's way, monk's way of doing it. Surely means do not let sin reign in your mortal body, as Romans 6 reminds us. It surely means reaching out to your neighbors 
to your coworkers, to your friends, and those you come in contact with. We must be willing to follow God's direction when it's hard or when it's easy and everything in between. And it's an easy one to talk about. We can all say it, we can all, but each one of us has steps in our daily lives where, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? We must follow. The next one is, is very much along the same lines, but being willing to obey when others may or may not. I'm not going to read all the names in uh, chapter 11, 3, but if we kind of went 3, uh, verse 3, all the way through 17, 18, uh, we're seeing uh, in verse 4, we've got these sons of Judah, and we've got these sons of Benjamin. We go a little farther down. We've got the priests. That'd be the Aaronic priesthood. We go a little farther down. We've got the Levites. We've got these different groups. And even maybe as you're reading that, you're thinking, well, where are the other tribes? Where are those other 10 tribes? You know, we've got Judah and Benjamin, but where are the other tribes? What's going on right now? Well, we know that in 722 B.C., uh, country of, of Israel, the northern ten tribes were taken over by the Assyrian army. They brought, uh, deported a bunch of the Israel tribes north, northeast, mostly north and northeast. Uh, and then they brought some other groups of people groups down into there. They intermarried, became the Samaritans, famous in Jesus' day of an intermarried group of people. Um, Judah, we had all these evil Israel kings. We had Judah had more kings who served God, but they too generally fell into idolatry. Babylon conquers. But God had made all kinds of promises to his people. And we could look at several of them, but one that sticks out to me, a pretty early one would be in Genesis 49. He makes a promise to Judah. He says, hey Judah, and he's got a big section, but one verse in there says, hey Judah, your brothers will praise and your father's sons will bow down. And you're going to be a lion, a lion's cub. He says the scepter is not going to depart from you. And we know if we could fast forward from this time to the time in Bethlehem of Jesus' birth, the lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus Christ himself. But at this time, quite a bit, you know, centuries before, what was left in Judah in 586 B.C.? Well, we had the, the very poor the uneducated. And then you add to that, back to the time we we're looking at today, this 444 BC era. What were things like at that, ta- at that time? What were some of the challenges? Well, turn with me to Nehemiah 5. I know we've covered this in a message previously, but this is a, just an awful section of verses. And let's put ourselves in these shoes. This is, this is Jews and other Jews. And this is how bad things were at the time Nehemiah came. Again, this is the third return that Nehemiah had. There'd been reforms under Ezra. There'd been a large group of people brought there from Sheshbazar. But look at this in, in chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax and our vineyards. Our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are their children. Yet, we're being forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters are already enslaved. And it's not in our power to help it. So picture this. So we are that community there. 
And that would be, some of us in here are the very, very poor that, that, that were left as, as land dressers from the get-go. We've got nothing other than working in the land. Some of these people who've come back from Persia came back with education, with skills, with money. They've got some more money than these people have even more money. And I'm taking my kids and I'm seeing some of them almost starving to death and I'm selling them to you and my kid is your slave and I, and, and I have no recourse. And we're all worshiping or looking to the same God. And these people in Nehemiah are saying, what is this? How can this be? This is not what it should be. And this is what Nehemiah is confronted with right here at this time. So let there be some tension even as we read. We've got these different groups of people. I would have some tension with you and you would have some tension with me if I was in charge of your kids and had them in slavery because you were starving. There'd be some tension in this group right now, correct? What are some other things you might have? We've got language differences. We've got cultural differences. Persia's beautiful and thriving at this time. And at least some of the Jews were benefiting from that or had. And then they are back. They're the the educated people. They're the gifted people. They're the rich people. And the poor didn't have that. Work skills. Worship differences. There's been no, no temple worship in Persia at this time. There has been a temple. The temple's been rebuilt in Israel, in in Judah. Some of those people are saying, I don't even know what the deal is with this temple stuff. I've never seen it. Such a a push for this two-class Judaism. Can you feel the tension with that there? And you add to that the sin nature born into every heart. The desire for my way, my plan, my goals, and it's really no different today. I've got, um, it's kind of an extended quote from this book. I I've got a few copies if you'd want to read. Um, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Uh, Some really good thinking there on BLM, critical race theory. Um, Yeah, some really good thinking in here. The forewords by John Perkins. If you don't like John Perkins, you've got some serious problems on your hands. Some really good stuff in here. But um, here's what he says about the idol of self. He says 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. Paul Hebert sees a new dominant religion in the West in which the self has become God and self-fulfillment our salvation. It's uh, not a coincidence that the meteoric rise of the gospel of autonomous self-making since the 1960s corresponds with a crescendo of brokenness. From 1960 to the turn of the 21st century, America doubled its divorce rate tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime rate, quintupled its prison population, sextupled out of wedlock births, septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which has been established as a significant predictor of divorce. In sum, making an idol out of self is just plain mean. We were never designed to bear the God-sized weight of creating and sustaining our own identities. It puts an unbearable weight on people's shoulders, especially children when they're indoctrinated to follow their hearts, be true to themselves, and dream up their own identities. It deprives them of the unspeakable joy and meaning that go with being authored by someone far more brilliant, strong, and loving than we are. Our churches must serve as trauma recovery centers for those crushed by the mainstream credo of self-creation. We need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to humble ourselves and run from our sin and into his arms not wanting ourselves on the throne and want him and to obey him only. 
On the screen behind me, I'm going to have some words from, some verses from Colossians chapter 1. And I would encourage you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, or if you're here today and you say, well, I believe in God, repent and believe the good news. That's the pusher. I can't be on the throne. I can't fix things. I can't make things right. But there is one who did and does. And he says, cast your burdens on me. Colossians 1 reminds us that since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints because of the hope, real hope, even in terrible circumstances like Nehemiah's, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth. And down to verse 9, And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this phrase connected to obedience, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Look at that obedience there. What a picture. What an opportunity for sinners to find new life and then the subsequent obedience in him. And then the last thing we see in, in this chapter, a willingness to see all God's children. This is under sacrifice. A willingness to see all of God's children as essential. I'm not going to read, but basically 20 and 21, and then 25 through the end of the chapter, um, just talks about all these different, these different groups of people. And um, as humans, we have a somewhat weirdly intense desire to be around people like us, um, think like us, act like us, values like us. And in the earliest section here, we see people in the city, and then 25 through 36 is people outside of the city. And then we go into chapter 12, and we have the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood and their heritage. And we have all these different people, real people, real homes, real fears, real problems, displaying God's glory. And they're not all the same. They're not all the same people, but they're displaying God's glory. And the people in the city, they need store owners and soldiers and city workers and families. And those country people, they need the farmers and the shepherds and the stone workers and the loggers. They're all needed, just like the body of Christ needs all. We need each other, and we have diversity in this group, and that's great and fine and good within biblical parameters. That's a gift. Colossians 3 reminds us that here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Tim Challies has an article um, that I thought was pretty helpful, and I'm going to read some of that. Um, it's kind of, it, the, the push of it is that we're secretly desirous of, ha- we, we kind of have a, this push in our heart of having a, a, a cultish desire. We kind of desire to find a group of people who are just like that. And pastors at times can kind of foment this by saying, hey, we're the only good church. We're the only gospel preaching church for 300 miles or 200 miles or, or whatever it might be. Or, oh, no. and, and yes, there's some differences in churches. And yes, there are, are non-gospel preaching churches that we ought not to be part of. Boy, there's this temptation of look, away, look out for the boogeyman because that's going to keep you here with me. Chalice has in this extended article, and I'm just going to just read a part of it. Um, it says, The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to transform those who believe it to such a degree 
The communities structured around it are markedly different from those that are not. When the gospel is honored and valued, it fosters love and unity among people who would otherwise be cold and distant. And in that way, gospel communities should reflect a kind of gospel diversity, a community in which a diverse group of people honor, enjoy, and serve one another as they're serving Christ. It says the inner cultist, I'm going to skip most of this, but the inner cultist tries to convince us that life would be better, relationships would be easier, the church would be uh, safer or better if only everyone was the same, the same as me. And that is not what our Savior has given us. So, God receives glory through a sacrificial people, sacrifice being defined accurately. And next, and we'll go a little quicker on this in chapter 12, God receives glory through worshiping people. Um, we, we had in, in 538 was the first return that we've talked about before under Sheish Bazaar and Zerubbabel. We've got the, the temple was started right away. Um, those came, and this is Ezra talked about that in the early part of his book, those came much as they did in Nehemiah's day and said, hey, we heard you're a bad guy. We heard you're trying to do this. Actually, this would be before Ezra's day that it talked about in the early part of Ezra. And they said, hey, you can't be doing this. We're going to tell the king that you're in rebellion. And the work stopped. And Ezra's just the chronicler of it. He's saying, hey, this is what happened in history. But it shut down. Now, I think about 12 or 15 years later, the work started again and the temple was finished. Um, so that temple is finished then in 516. Ezra comes on the scene in 458. Nehemiah, again, as we said earlier, 444, 445. And that's really how chapter 12 starts. It starts with a little history at the beginning. It names all these people that came in the very first return. And then Nehemiah gets us in 10, 11, and 12 and says, and now you're back in my day, because he names people that are then current. So it's a little confusing to read because you're thinking, well, wait, wasn't this guy here and wasn't this guy here? Just know he gives you some history and he works you back through verse 12 into the current day. And I would say with these names, and um, I'm not going to reread a bunch of the names. They were well-read. Many of them were, were uh, well-read earlier. We didn't read, again, every name in the entire two chapters. But Adam did a terrific job with these. And I will say these names might not mean much to us today, but they're forever recorded in God's word as those who faithfully serve the Lord in a really, really hard time. They were, do I know the details of these men? I don't. Do I know the trials their wife went through? Do I know the trials their kids went through? I don't. You don't. But God does. He chose to have their name recorded. They are significant to God and what matters more. Verse 24, we'll look at that. It says, And the chiefs of the Levites, we'll jump in there in verse 24 of chapter 12. And the chiefs of the Levites, it says, And their, and their brothers who stood opposite them. And here's, here's what is their job to do. First uh, Chronicles 23, David has said, Hey, here's what the Levites were to do. I think it's the second half of that chapter. What are they to do? They are to praise and they are to give thanks. And, and it's under the organizing that David had done. And I hope that in the very start of this service, when we had a, a family, plus one, but when we had a family leading our worship, that you were saying, praise be to God. When we were hearing the words of those songs and saying, this is how great our God is. This is what our Savior has done. This is how good he is to broken people. I hope you were singing and not just saying some words, but you were saying, 
All praise be to God. And we are really gifted as a church with all the different individuals who help lead on our worship team, whether it's a 14-year-old on up this morning or others on different weeks. We're a gifted church. We could also think of Sunday school teachers are promoting worship by teaching little kids and older kids and even adults, hey, this is what God deserves. This is who he is. May he receive worship. When we sent out, I think this past week or maybe the week before, I sent out two salvation testimonies of potential members of our church. I hope you read those and said, glory be to God. Look at what the hand of God has done in the lives of people. And then the, the two women that sent them in have different backgrounds and they're different ages and they have different life circumstances. But Almighty God reached down in a beautiful way and brought them to himself and praise be to him. So we have some dedication of the wall, 27, um, really through 43. 44 through the end of the chapter gives some details about what that was supposed to look like. I'm going to read a little bit of this in 27 through, through the end of the chapter. I'll skip around some. So you can just listen or you can follow along with me if you would like to do that. Um, but be looking for these words of joy and gladness and thanksgiving. And let's not just limit our idea of worship to, oh, that's what happens on Sunday morning for a half an hour. Or that's what happens during the songs. Or that, you know, all of this is worship. All, every bit of this is worship. Every bit, of, every bit of our life as God's children is to be worship to him. So how many times are we going to see joy and gladness and thanksgiving? It's quite a few. Verse 27 says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And they gathered them together and they purified the people in verse 30 and the gates and the walls. They're praying over all of this. And then Nehemiah says, And I brought the leaders of Judah up into the wall and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And he sends one choir along this way, walking on the top of the wall. And he sends one choir walking this way and it's a whole bunch of people. And they meet over at the temple. And even just to be there would be just terrific. And you'd also be hopefully thinking, I know Nehemiah would be thinking, and we should be thinking, and I, I would assume their group would be thinking, hey, remember when Tobiah said, hey, nice wall. If a fox gets up on that wall, he'd knock it down. A little fox can't even be on that thing. And you've got two huge choirs walking around, praising God, working their way over to the temple. I hope they were saying, look at this wall. It's holding all of us. It's by the good hand of God. Worship his name. Verse 38, there's the other choir, and they gave thanks. They went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, and they're working their way over. Um, verse 40, the choirs of those who good, gave thanks, they stood in the house of God, and I and the officials with me. And then he shares some religious leaders, and then verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy, for the women and children also rejoiced in the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions. This is, this is work in the temple. This is organization in the temple. And, and that's right with worship too when we think about the people that are serving behind the scenes and organizing who sets up tables for this and who provides food for that and who's getting Sunday school material and who's training this new Sunday school teacher and who's keeping the place safe and walking around and providing security and welcoming, all those different things. 
the first fruits and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Down to 46. And long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers. And, you know, at this time, in 444, the years of David, he came, became king in, in 1010 BC. So we're looking almost 600 years back, saying, hey, look at how it was under David. We remember his song leader. And look at what God is doing for us today. There were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God at the end of 46. And all of Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah. So these are the first return and then the last return. Gave the daily portions to the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Pretty, pretty amazing picture that he gives us right there. Now, we could argue, and we'll just look at this quickly, but why are they getting so excited about the walls of the temple? I can see them getting excited in Ezra 6 about the, about the temple being built, but why are we being so excited about the walls? We just have to keep in our thinking that every square inch idea, that every part of life, everything in this world, everything outside of this world is dedicated to God. And you, we, if we could think about what percentage of our time in a given week was spent in this building or reading the word of God, or praying. I don't know what percentage you might come up with, but whatever it is, you've got a whole lot of other life going on. But what we really need to think is every bit of this is for the honor and glory of our Savior. So when you're working at your machine at work, when you're doing surgery on someone, when you are dumping the trash, when you're, whatever you are doing, every square inch, it's under the realm and rule and is, can be worship and a gift done to honor our Savior. We've got these choirs there, a beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, and, I, and I have one caution before we conclude with some application. There is such a temptation. You know, most of us in here would say, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with the prosperity gospel. Oh, that's a false gospel, and, and rightly so. But there's a lot of really sound churches that have another kind of prosperity gospel. That if God is in this, it's all going to work out really nicely. And that is often not the case. So here's some things to think about. There's still outside enemies and there's still outside lies. There's still people saying, hey, Nehemiah, I'm telling on you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to the rulers of Persia and I'm going to let them know what you're up to. And yeah, he says in a confident way, you're making up lies. You're crazy. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to keep on working. But those enemies are still all around. They didn't go away. They're still there. Yes, God's gifted us with all of this, but they are still there. There's still poverty. There's still the famine that we saw in chapter 5. And especially so compared to Persia. Persia had a lot more going on economically than Judah at this time. There's still a weak little territory, and they're under Persian rule. The push is always in Scripture, for God's people to, to, to rule themselves, the entire Old Testament. Say, this is not how it should be. I can't be under someone else's rule. They're under Persian rule right here. And that's not going away. They're still under Persian rule. Also, if you look at the size of Israel and Judah combined under the time of Solomon, got a pretty good sized country right there. It's not humongous, but it's pretty good sized. What is it right now? Probably about 30 miles by 40 miles. That's a pretty small little territory under someone else's rule. But 
cannot get our eyes off of that verse 43 that we read before. They offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them to rejoice with great joy. For the women and children, they also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Life wasn't perfect, but God is, and they're going to trust in him. It doesn't mean that everything is right with your family, with your job, with your home, with your finances, with your health. No, not in this, not in this world. But can you with them worship and rejoice as those in Judah did? So, so three questions, and they're on, on the sheet that you have to take notes with. But three questions that I have by way of application. One, who is defining how I live my life? So what can change to increasingly spend my life as a living sacrifice? If you are breathing and you're in this room, you are tempted to let other people's thinking and actions push how you live your life, how you think, what you see as normal. And we need to push as children of God, who defines that? Are we willing as God's children to be, at least at times, the weird guy in the room? the person that doesn't look cool in society. Are, are you willing? Am I willing? Because what we often want is, I want to be the coolest guy. I want to have all the good stuff. And yeah, I'll be a Christian along with that. That is not the picture that we get in Nehemiah 11 and 12. Two, do I worship him? Really, really worship him. I'm going to read to you from Psalm uh, 63. And I, I would like you to do this. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Psalm 63, and I'd actually um, like you to shut your eyes while I read. So if you could, if you are willing to do that, if you could shut your eyes, and I just want you to concentrate on the worship that's going on in this passage. And then at the end of verse eight, I'll have you open your eyes again. But I just, you really think, who is my God? And what has he done? And the honor and glory that he is due. Let me read. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You can open your eyes again. I hope you were worshiping as we were reading those words together and you were recognizing the goodness and the intensity of the goodness of our God. So do I worship him, really worship him? And then the third question, does restoration really happen? Uh, we're going to say yes. We had the temple foundation, and then the, there was opposition, it stopped, and then the temple was finished. We had the walls, there was opposition. The walls were built, praise the Lord. said in, in chapter 10, verse 29, all that the Lord says we will do, restoration, restoration, restoration. But there's some no to that restoration as well. We've got 400 silent years coming just right around the bend from Nehemiah. Malachi is written 
20, 25 years after this time of Nehemiah, and we got nothing from God. No word from God in that time, unprecedented in, in Israel's history to that point. No word from God. What about this restoration? What about we've got the temple and we've got the walls? What, what's going on here? We've got Greek rule. The Greeks supplanted the Persians, so now they're a territory of the Greeks. Alexander the Great did his thing. We've got the Maccabees. The Maccabees fought him back for a while. It wasn't long lived. The Romans, eventually Roman rule. Is this all for nothing in Nehemiah? I thought this restoration was supposed to happen. I thought this restoration was supposed to be complete. Is there hope? Will things ever be right again? Well, in Revelation 21, we've got a reminder. It says in Revelation 21, John says, so it says 400 and 500 and 40 years, 535 years after this, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus, God with us, restoration is complete. It's coming. But until we're there, until he comes and gets his bride, sacrificial living, worship, we can bring him glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as weak people, may we just increasingly see you as you are. May we live a life of sacrifice, not a public look at me, but a from the heart and our actions in every part of our being live a worshipful, sacrificial for you life. Some of us might not be alive tomorrow. Some of us might live 95 more years. But in whatever days and moments you give us, may they be about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me.